The NCAA tries to argue to the Supreme Court that it's not really a billion-dollar business and that not paying college athletes is good because, well, did we mention we're not really a billion-dollar business? Yeah, and the Supreme Court justices, all of them, went Dikembe Mutombo on the NCAA. It was sweet to see. And the Supreme Court decided Google the Oracle. Now, what they decided well, you're going to have to ask your teenager about that one, as I am not sure I understand what open source coding is all about. But hey, Amy and I will try in this week's debriefing of the law. Welcome to this week's Debriefing of the Law edition. I am Joel Oster, your host, and we have our another um, quasi-regular now co-host, Amy Francis Lomansky. Amy, thank you so much for joining us again today. Oh, Joel, thank you for having me back. I'm, you know, I'm glad my shenanigans didn't get me kicked off yet. Not yet, no, no. Though that is that is the hope. I'm hoping we can push the envelope, push the edge so much that one day people are saying, "What in the world are you guys talking about?" I know you kind, you and I have talked about some of those topics we can address in the future. That definitely pushes the envelope, and I can't wait until we get to those. But hey, today we're going to also maybe push the edge a little bit because. When we last talked, you said uh, you're going to go out and get a, um, uh, a Botox treatment, and you were going to give us a live update uh, as to what that process was like. Uh, any kind of uh, comments you want to give us about the whole Botox treatment? Are you now going to be a regular addition on Beverly Hills Housewives? I have no idea what kind of show that is, but uh, I, I, what, what was that like? So it was not a pleasant process. There are needles being injected into your face. So it's not, does not feel wonderful, but I will say the results are worth it. They are totally worth it. Now, I, I will tell you, listeners, that what we just did was Amy and I tried to do this via video, and that is coming soon. We we don't have the audio worked out just yet, but so we did about, I don't know, what would you say, Amy, about a five minute segment on the video part? Yes, about a five-minute segment until we realized that we were getting feedback. So right. here we are. And, and you um, got close to the camera so we could see the evidence of the Botox. And maybe I'll put a picture of that up on the show notes here so you can see what a great job your Botox technician, what, what, what are they called, surgeons, doctors, injectors? I have no idea. Uh, but, hey, that, that was it a he or she? It is a female physician. She is wonderful. She's an actual medical doctor who prior to doing cosmetic procedures used to do rounds and did her residency in extremely, um, how do I put this? I guess, busy um, emergency rooms such as Chicago and Newark. Really? So she's super experienced, told me some horrifying stories, which did not calm me down during the procedure, actually. <laughs> did not make me feel better in any way. Um, but she is super tough and super experienced, and she is wonderful. So if anyone is considering having a cosmetic procedure in the state of New Jersey, the Youth Fountain in Freehold, New Jersey, I highly, highly recommend it. 
Hey, there you go. We got our first sponsor for this podcast. Now, I, I do want to know, because I, I got to admit, I am fascinated by medical procedures. I, I, I thought about being a medical doctor, and then someone reminded me there's blood involved, and I have to see a cadaver. And so I said, no, I think the law is the, the route for me. Uh, but I just got my second COVID shot this uh, last week, and I did not want to do that because I hated needles. And, and But you are putting needles Oh, into your, your, your forehead? Yes, there are, it is. So Botox is injected. So there's okay. different brands of Botox, just so you know. Um, Botox just became, I guess, the the recognizable name. It's like Kleenex, right? You associate okay. that with a tissue. But Botox is actually, I guess, um, like some kind of botulism you stick into your face, and it, it, it kind of freezes your face. So I will say my face is a little frozen which is okay with me because the wrinkles are gone. So I'm okay with it. Oh, please. You are what? 30 some. I am, oh. I am knocking down 50 right now. I, I am sniffing those fifties armpits. I'm in that close. And, <laughs> and so it's, um, no, you, you have no idea what wrinkles are like. Until, uh, but and hey. I don't want to know. That's the point. I don't want to know. I want to, you know, harness this youth I have now. So I, know. I don't, you, and Joel, don't, don't knock yourself. You look good. You look good. <laughs> you know, I, you, you say that it actually, I remember I was in New York city on a case and I, I showed up in court and I had a baby face way back when. And, and so I had to grow the goatee just so that I could add some years to my face. Cause I didn't want the, um, the, the, you know, judges thinking I just got out of law school last week and showed up in federal court there in New York city. And my client of a classic New Yorker. Oh man, he was amazing. Uh, I call him the shoe mafia there in New York city, uh, classic, um, uh, New York person he talks with the accent and everything like that. But yeah, he saw me come off the plane and he was like, Oh, we're screwed. Now he did not say screwed. He said something else, but I just did not look the part of being able to hold my own in New York city. And so I decided I got to grow a goatee that way. It adds some years to my face, but unfortunately, Amy, right now that goatee is starting to resemble Colonel Sanders. Uh, it's a little too white. Uh, for, for my liking right now. So either I'm going to have to shave this off because I don't need to add years now or maybe go into some kind of hair coloring. I'm just, I'm afraid of hair coloring. Uh, what, what do you think about coloring a guy's beard? I, you know, one, I, the it is on an uneven playing field for the ladies and the men. Okay. Here it okay. is. Men, you guys get gray. It's distinguished. It's ah, sexy. Like it. it adds wisdom. Women, we get gray and we look haggard. So <laughs> no. honestly, I would leave the goatee alone. I think it is a distinguishing goatee and it makes you look like you have wisdom and experience. And that is in all the best ways because men, you tend to age like a fine wine. Most of you women, not so much. It's very unfair, but it is what it is. I am going to leave that one alone. I am smart enough to know to leave that one alone. But I will say I do like fried chicken. So if I look like Colonel Sanders, I guess it's not the worst <laughs> thing in the world um, because I do enjoy a good piece of fried chicken. Well, let's debrief the – oh, what, what other story from the, this last week? I had to go buy a car uh, this last week. And I, I got to tell you, I love the experience of buying cars. Uh, do, do you like buying cars? Do you like haggling the, for the price? 
don't. And I, this may be, a, again, another male-female component. I hate it. I, I go in there and whatever I'm told to pay, and this is this this is where we get the reputation that a man should go with you to a car dealership. Right, but right. it's true because whatever I'm told to pay, I just want to get in and out. <laughs> I have been dealing with the same car salesman for like five years. I okay. love him. He loves me. And he knows whatever he tells me to pay, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to be like, okay, right. Mark, that sounds great. And move on. <laughs> Terrible. No, I, I, that is, uh, I got to tell you, I did, I'm not proud of what, I, what I'm about to share with you. This is not a, one of my prouder moments in my life, but there was a time several years ago where my brother and I went car shopping, and I think we were shopping for a uh, Camaro, a Trans Am, something in that that line. So you know, it was several years ago, and um, I went. We had no even thought of buying this car, no pretenses of buying this car. We just wanted to haggle. And so we go there, just try to haggle the price down until we got it just perfect. And then we just walked out and say, nope, we were just kidding. Uh, I, know, <laughs> I know that's not a fine moment. I'm just sharing that because that's how much I love haggling and buying cars. I love the whole process. Now, Amy, this is actually a true story. I have heard that the three lowest respected professions, uh, do you know what, who they are, what they are? Um... Since you're bringing it up now, I you know then I'm gonna guess car salesman, right? Because nobody likes car a used salesman? car salesman. If you don't like somebody, you're like, oh, he's like a used car salesman. Right, right. That, Three that's lowest one. professions. Um, I don't know. Uh, who's who's left on that list? I guess like a telemarketer. No one's ever happy to hear from them. Um, <laughs> Telemarketers and- is is not on this list. It was car salesman insurance agents and lawyers that, that was oh, the list yeah. i saw the three lowest respected professions and in my career back in college i sold hondas for frank and kona honda i graduated from from college sold insurance for country companies insurance and now i'm a lawyer so i am scraping <laughs> the bottom of the barrel and i have no Nobody likes no, you. Nobody. Exactly, yeah. That's why I do this podcast so i can get some love from somewhere but uh, I, I, people often ask me well then what are you going to do next? What is next on your horizon? I don't know. Maybe a politician. What else could you do that's lower respected than those three? I sure, I'm sure politicians would fit the bill. Uh, but I really enjoyed the, the process yesterday. But I got to admit, it was classic car buying because they left me alone at one point in time for 60 minutes. I was sitting there in the dealership waiting to hear back from them for 60 minutes. They did not even come back. They didn't say hi. They didn't say, hey, here's what's going on. Uh, would you have just walked out? Yes, absolutely. 10,000%. Yeah. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was crazy. But they had the car I wanted, and, uh, and they were good people. But nonetheless, uh, two hours after closing, we got the deal done. And so I have my new... Honda Odyssey minivan. I, I hate saying Honda Odyssey minivan because, again, that just shows how old I am. Uh, I had to turn. Apparently, you had to turn turn in your man card when you buy a, a Honda Odyssey, but that's what yes. I did. They're mm. just. But you don't. You don't. You have not gone down the minivan route. I will refuse to go down the minivan route. I am holding strong on my large SUV. I only have one child so far. Hopefully, more to come. Uh, God willing, but I am holding fast on my SUV and I will not go down the mini van route unless it is 
forced upon me. <laughs> well, through the years, we will be watching you for the Botox treatment updates and also the minivan uh, inevitability. It, it's going to happen. I already see it in your future. Uh, I am the, the time lord. I can see all things that I know. Since you've already made the decision of it makes sense to have an SUV, that shows you're practical-minded. You think of those kind of thoughts. And so, yes, uh, I hate to tell you the minivan is in, in your future. But... Hey, en enough of that nonsense. All right, let's start debriefing the law because last this is the last couple of weeks we did miss last week, uh, but uh, there's been a lot happening in the world of law. Let's start off with my favorite topic, sports. Did you uh, assume you did not watch the NCAA tournament or did you watch the tournament? I, I did not. I don't know what's going on. So I, okay. I can't really, but I, I, you know, every year I do make a bracket and some years I've done incredibly well. I have not a clue what's going on. I pick my favorite team based on like the prettiest jerseys. Okay. Hey, you would have been much better than me. So I probably did 10 brackets this year and uh, one bracket I did, I reserved for my dog. And so I, I try <laughs> to compete against my dog, see if I can beat my dog. Here's what my dog does. He, he only, she only picks the favorite because my, my dog is stupid. He does, she doesn't understand sports, and so she'll just pick the favorite, and that's it. And she beats me every year because if you just pick the favorites, like this year she had Gonzaga and Baylor in the finals, and of course Gonzaga and Baylor were in the finals, and so she um, uh, she not she did not win the final game, but nonetheless I picked my KU Jayhawks all the way to the end. I'm mentioning that as a segue to the NCAA v. Alston case, which is before the Supreme Court last week. And the issue is amateurism. Is amateurism, is that a valid concept in America? Because here is the problem, uh, Amy, and I want to really get into this. We have these, these antitrust laws. So in America, we value free competition. I mean, just think of, you know, Theodore Roosevelt and the trust busters. We like for there to be freedom amongst businesses. And whenever there's price fixing amongst people and businesses, that's really bad for, for the economy. We, we just don't like it. We don't like price fixing at all. And that's why there is a really tough law out there, the Sherman Antitrust Law, that prohibits anything regards to fixing wages, fixing prices, anything like that. And so uh, I, I assume you're, you're aware of that. All right. In that context, then, you have amateur sports. Now, to the Supreme Court, this seemed Contradictory. I mean, this seems oxymoronic. But what what are your thoughts? Do you think it's right for the NCAA, a billion dollar industry? They just did March Madness with millions of dollars coming through. They're making their coaches are being paid five million dollars a piece, uh, huge amounts of money, and the players nothing. What what are your thoughts? So I stand with the Supreme Court's kind of view on the NCAA's argument about amateurism and, well, these players can't get paid because they're so-called amateurs. Right. I find that concept to almost be egregious in the sense that these players, right, they are basically, it's like indentured servitude in my mind because yes. some of them are getting scholarships and that may be great and grand, but you also hear stories of the kids that are there on scholarships where food isn't covered or shoes aren't covered or whatever it is that's not covered. So the student is putting in an exorbitant amount of time into this, right? Even neglecting oh, studies, which is 
been, you know, the Supreme Court did bring up, and I'm very happy that someone brought it up, that these folks, these individuals who some of them go on to play professional sports, some of them do not, right? Very few go on. You're right. The vast majority do not have professional sporting uh, opportunities. Exactly. So the coaches, the coaches salaries alone make me want to vomit (laughs) seriously for them. I mean, not that they're not dedicated, not that they're not putting the time in, but for a coach to be making, I don't know, whatever the salary cap was millions of dollars, $2 million a year to be coaching this group of kids who are, you know, prospectively, like, again, like I said, some of them may not have extra funding. They should be getting paid. I'm sorry. They should be getting paid something aside, you know, if kids are getting full scholarships, then that could be some kind of comparable payment, but they should be getting something. It is so unfair to these players. If you listen to the argument of the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, I feel like is rated to wind things back quite a bit. They're, They're saying, hey, look, amateurism, that's wrong. That, that That is actually almost barbaric to our free enterprise system. I know you say you like amateurism. Well, duh, you like amateurism because you're not paying your workforce. We don't like that. Where else in, in the economy are you allowed to have a workforce that you say, you know what, we're not going to pay you. Uh, and have an agreement amongst everyone not to pay them. Now, see, that's where the real problem is, right? That all these players are, these uh, these universities, these schools, they're agreeing amongst each others to fix the the, the terms of wages for these employees. I, I'm doing air quotes here. You can't see it because we don't have our YouTube channel up yet. But, you know, quote, unquote, employees, they have, have agreed not to pay them. And the Supreme Court... They were, they were not having it. And I got to tell you, I want to talk a little bit about what do we think the court is going to do because I think they're on the verge of doing something radical with amateur sports. And I, um, I'm very excited to see what's going to happen. Well, let's, first of all, let me back up here, Amy. Uh, what was the case about? All right, so the case before the court, the, the court just heard argument last week on was a class action against the NCAA and the major athletic conferences, uh, you know, like the, uh, the Pac-10, the Big Ten, things like that, the major conferences. And they were arguing the NCAA's restrictions on eligibility and compensation violate the federal antitrust laws. All right, we, we talked about that. But here's what the district court below did. So this is now at the U.S. Supreme Court. Below, a federal district court in California ruled that the NCAA could restrict benefits that are unrelated to education. So in other words, if if the uh, if the benefits you want to pay them are unrelated to receiving an education, like we're just going to pay you a million dollars. Okay, you, you can do that. You can have that agreement. This is what the district court said. All right. But what the district court said was it, it prohibited the NCAA from limiting education-related benefits such as free laptops uh, or, or paid post-graduation in- internships. So in other words, according to the district court, and the circuit court agreed as well, the um, these you know universities and the NCAA, they could fix prices when it came to anything outside of the educational realm. But when it came to educational things like room and board and postgraduate education and things like that, they cannot fix the prices within that market. Now, Amy, I got to tell you, I, I don't think that is the, is the, the right answer. Um, I, I think that the entire thing is problematic. I mean, I think, I think the Supreme Court said, look, we understand that's what the district court ruled. 
we think amateurism in general is is a problematic under the antitrust laws. What's your take? So, Joel, I agree with you. I think the biggest issue that we're going to face, should we go down, you know, the route of prior rulings that, you know, you can't fix the prices for education or what, you know, things related to education. And they, you know, the court doesn't want to open that door, right? Because we have an enormous problem in this country. And I don't want to, you know, beat my own personal drum with the amount of student loans, how student loans are, you know, the interest rates on student loans. And, you know, if we effectively set pricing for schools, there'll be, you know, a crisis with, you know, student loans and how much you can receive. I am the poster child for an an incredible amount of student loans and at a ridiculous interest rate and trying to figure out how I'm going to pay them, you know, for the the rest of our lives, for the rest of our lives. Right. So my big, you know, they can't open that door on fixing pricing for students or whatever it is, because that will open a, just a nationwide crisis relating back to, you know, our entire higher education system. Um, The system is broken in general. It is broken. Um, But should these, players be receiving, you know, compensation that is related to education. I think that's probably the route that the Supreme Court should go on this issue because the biggest, you know, problem in in this entire concept is these, you know, the system, the NCAA, they're getting rich from this. The players are getting nothing and they're essentially supposed to be there for school, right? Isn't that what this is about? Theoretically, at least that's what the NCAA is trying to say. This is about education. I think the problem with that approach is you have a billion-dollar industry. Your coaches are making millions of dollars. The school is making millions of dollars on in foot on football and basketball. Uh, those are the two main you know money revenue gener- generating sports, and uh, and their their workforce there. They have agreed we're not going to pay you guys, and, and that sure seems to be self-serving uh, to the um, uh, the businesses. So, Amy, let me go ahead and, and uh, tell you some of the things that the court said and get your take on them because I think what the district court did was they were a little nervous. In other words, they wanted to come; they were too afraid to just undo the entire thing and say amateurism by itself is not good. I mean, if you want to do amateurism, then you do amateurism. But this is a business here. Clearly, this is a billion-dollar business. This is not amateurism. All right, that, that aside, these are some of the things that the Supreme Court justices said during oral argument. Uh, and so uh, Clarence Thomas said that coaches are paid a ton for this amateur sport, and he noted that college football and basketball coaches were the highest-paid state employees in 39 states. So the governor... Government makes pittance compared to what these ba- basketball and football coaches make. A- any thoughts on on the the pay of um, sports coaches being so much greater than all the other state employees? I think again, I think it is outrageous how much these individuals are getting paid. Again, especially in the context where their players, their employees, are not getting a, a exactly, dime. and it is out. It is. It infuriates me. It infuriates me. If you just look at schools and the deans of some schools, um, how much they get paid? That's a right. worth of Google to some people. And right. who's getting paid the most and how they're benefiting? Again, the entire education system in this country is absolutely broken. And you know, 
who do we have to blame for it? Should we have the system to blame for it? Should we be blaming the fans who some, you know, some fans, especially college football fans, you don't mess with college football fans. People love their team, whether they went to that school or not. So being from New Jersey, we have no real, I mean, Rutgers is pretty good, but you know, I moved to South Florida and there's some die hard, you know, Tallahassee fans, Gator fans, and whatever it is down there. And my concept is, it's like, well, you didn't go to that school, but it's not about that. It's not about right. that. I was like, right, what right. do you mean? You don't love this team. You didn't. You never even went to the school. Like, I, I can't wrap my head around it. It took me so long to understand this concept. But for the coaches of these teams to be making $2 million a year, again, yes. when some of the players are going home and they don't even have proper, you know, food or oh, right. equipment, it is disgusting. No, it is. I, it is disgusting. It is. I agree a hundred percent. And you, you are, you hit the nail on the head. So the, if this really was about amateurism and it, this is just about colleges, well then why is the calculus professor and the history professor and even your biology professors, they're making pence compared to what your football coaches and basketball coaches are making. No, no, this is business. This is the biggest business out there. And your workforce, you guys have agreed to pay nothing to. And that is totally against antitrust laws uh, and what what the antitrust laws were designed to prevent. So I got to tell you, I am thinking the Supreme Court, they're they're, they're hopping mad. Let me tell you what Alito said, and this will really get you going. Alito said, um, regarding the athletes, he said that they are recruited, they're used up, and then they're cast aside. Now, that does not sound like someone who doesn't get it. I mean, he, he Alito absolutely gets what is going on here under the antitrust laws. Absolutely. He, I'm completely with him and he's a hundred percent right because you go to these, again, just by way of example, you go to a college football game. A true fan knows every kid on that team. And right. mind you, these are college kids in the state of New Jersey, children are not fully emancipated unless they go, you know, join the military or they start to work. If a child continues on to higher education, they're not deemed emancipated and they're still deemed in need of financial support. So again, the concept is these are, these are kids. They may be over the age of majority, but they're in college to try to set them for life. And when they're dedicating all of their time to a sport that doesn't give a crap about them and then they're thrown away like trash at the end, I 100% agree with that. They're being exploited. So here, uh, uh, Kagan said, uh, what this case boils down to is, is that schools that are naturally competitors have all gotten together and used their power to fix salaries for college athletes at extremely low levels. So again, Kagan and Alito, they absolutely get this issue. And I'm telling you, they're hopping mad. They recognize this whole context here of the NCAA is big business, and they all have agreed that their employees will get paid nothing. All right, so I already told you Alito, strong conservative. Kagan would be considered a, a liberal slash moderate on the court. So both sides are coming after the NCAA. Let me tell you what Kavanaugh said. Because Kavanaugh even, yeah, he, he, he was really not holding punches at all. Kavanaugh uh, told the, the lawyer uh, that the um, you know, uh, was considering the premise of the U.S. antitrust law said should not be a cover for exploitation of the student athletes. So 
Again, that sounds like Kavanaugh absolutely gets it. He then summarized the case as one in which the schools were conspiring with their competitors to, quote, pay no salaries to the workers who are making the school billions of dollars on the theory that consumers want the schools to pay their workers nothing. Such a scenario, he concluded, seems entirely circular and even somewhat disturbing. Now, have you ever seen that in an opinion where a court will say something is disturbing? Very rarely. I think it's got to be a very special situation for a court to put an opinion out there that is so adverse to one side before a decision is made. And I think we know which way this is leading. I mean, the real issue is going to come in on how do we disseminate the money that these sports are making the schools? Does it belong to the schools? Does it belong to the players? Does it belong to, you know, should we be using it for grants and scholarships to further education? I don't know. I really don't know the answer on that. You know, I don't want to take it down a road where, you know, we're tipping the scales toward too far of a left socialist concept where right, well, right. we just give it away to everybody. But, you know, where do, where do we draw the line? And that's the school's argument. The schools can say, look, you're only focusing on – uh, basketball and football, the revenue generating sports. But we use this money to fund other things at the university. And, and so there are a lot of other non-revenue generating sports. And so I guess I get that to a certain extent, but still, the, if you heard what the justices said, they clearly see the problem is that you have, this is a business. You are bringing in billions of dollars and, and your workforce, you guys have agreed amongst one another not to pay the workforce. And that by definition is an antitrust huge problem and a huge issue. And so I'm, I'm very curious to see what the court is going to do. All right. Uh, Amy, one thing that has been tossed out there about this, and you just pointed to it, you, you, you handed to it a little bit, and that is what kind of remedy can be given here? Because some people in the court even was suggesting that that $5,900, basically $6,000, it's an arbitrary amount. They said, look, that's how much money you can give these kids per year. So you give every athlete $6,000. Amy, I don't see that as being a, a solution. That is I mean, not even a comparable solution. That $6,000 per year would not right. even cover a meal a meal plan. And, and that and is, laughable. is laughable. Right. So once they've agreed that we're going to pay you $6,000 for whatever reason, as you pointed out, that's laughable. So then next year, someone's going to litigate and say, look, that's laughable. We need $10,000. Look how much money we're bringing to school. That will then be laughable. Someone's going to say, hey, look, we brought in you know, this great athlete. He brought in millions of dollars to the university. How come you can't pay him more? So I don't know what the court's going to do. That The remedy part I will give you. That's tough. I have no idea how the court's going to handle that. I just, I'm just pointing out the court saw this as being a huge problem. The court understood that, and the ramifications could be destroying the amateurism model. And so, any final thoughts here before we move on? You know, I, I'm just really glad that nine people much smarter than you and I are going to make the call because I really don't know how we're going to fix this at this point. I, you know, I, I again, know. I. I love, I want these players to do well. I want them to be taken care of. And I think that's the most important part is we take care of the players. So 
Let well, me thanks. also just put this out there because it, it is a personal bias on mine. My KU Jayhawks, my beloved KU Jayhawks, are under attack from the NCAA. They, they're going to level sanctions against uh, the KU Jayhawks for having the audacity to have a contract with these shoe companies, and these shoe companies were allegedly paying money to some of these players' relatives in the thoughts that that would help lure these players to this university. Apparently, this goes on at all the universities, but for some reason, they're targeting KU. And I'm going to tell you, we're going to cover this in more detail in future podcasts. This is going to be a huge deal. But, Amy, here's my problem with the NCAA coming in and really attacking my KU Jayhawks. They are way guiltier. I mean, what the NCAA is doing is saying, look, we have this workforce. You can't pay them a dime. We want to keep all this money to ourselves. To me, that is infinitely worse than any university giving some players who come from disadvantaged backgrounds some money so that their light bill can stay on. I mean, right, let, let's call it like it is. These players are coming from places. They're, they're not the richest of, of families and that are coming in. And so they need the money. And the NCAA is making billions of dollars. I just think this is like the NCAA saying, hey, you got a speck of dust in your eye, ignoring the plank that's in their own. And so any final thoughts before I get off my soapbox? My soapbox is really righteous today. I got to tell you, I got to get off of this. <laughs> okay. Well, we we absolutely should get off of this because we could be on it forever. Um, my thoughts are, you know, maybe someone should do an investigation into everything that goes on when drafting players to schools, right? Where is that investigation? Where does it come in that? And we all know, because even if you watch, um, I believe it was, I forget the program that put it out. It was on ESPN. It was about drafting players to the university of Miami. There are some very, very poor areas in the state of Florida. Bell Glade specifically is an incredibly poor area. It was built on the premise of immigrant farmers. There are still sugarcane fields out there um, and it's primarily farming, but a lot of football players come from this area. So during, I think it was probably the nineties, you know, the coaches from Miami would go in and give players money and their families money and try to get them to come to, you know, the U And where do we draw the line on this? You have everything from giving a player who comes from, you know, a rural or, you know, a poorer background, some money to keep the light bill on to, you know, possibly, you know, prostitution and drugs and everything else. So who's doing this investigation? Where do we draw the lines? And how are we, how is the Supreme Court going to fix this? Not us. We're not going to fix this. The Supreme Court's going to fix this. Okay, Amy, because of what you just said, I am back on my soapbox here. So Ah. get ready. I, you just, you just fired me up again. Uh, because here, here is why. Um, I assume you follow the news this last week and you just pointed out how they'll go into some of these disadvantaged areas to find these football players and pull them out. Some from difficult backgrounds are bringing them to their university. And as the Supreme court justice said, you're not graduating them. You're using them for your athletic facilities and your programs. And then you're shipping them out. I think less than 15% actually ever graduate. So you're not actually educating these kids. All right. So, so we get that they're, they're taking these kids out. We're not going to pay them. On top of that, this last week, there was this former NFL player who's only 32 years of age, went to, I forget what state it was, but I'm sure you you've, you heard about it in the news, shot five people and then killed himself. Do you remember that? 
I do remember that story. Yes, just this week. Did you also hear, because I don't know if you would have picked up on it, because I'm a huge football fan. This was a former NFL player who did this. I yeah. did hear that, yeah. There is a real danger here uh, from these these head injuries that happen to these kids, and they're saying it actually impacts them, ter- makes them a much more violent later on in life, and the statistics on that are just astounding. And, and so here's, here's where I'm going with, with that. They are taking these players in, not paying them a dime, possibly ruining them for life, exploiting them to make their billions of dollars and not graduating them. Amy, this is a problem. I am back on my soapbox, but nonetheless, uh, any final things before we move on to our next case? You know what, Joel? I am, I am saddened and I, I, I just hope the best for these players. I don't even want to go down this road anymore. Cause again, we can go on it forever because yes. it's a tragedy and I'm, I and am it's- hopeful that the Supreme court will, bring some justice to these players. I really am. And, and it's sports and law, my two favorite topics. And so I can talk forever on those. Uh, again, in the future, we will dig into the NCAA's um, uh, investigations into KU because I got a lot to say about that topic. All right, let's move on now to something that I find a fascinating turn of events. What we're talking about here, you remember last year, the Congress wanted President Trump's tax returns, and so they issued a subpoena. He didn't want to comply with it. He appealed it to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, no, you didn't give enough uh, consideration to the the, uh, you know, the, variation, the separation of uh, branches, things like that, uh, and the checks and balances, and so sent it back. So now this issue is coming up again where the House wants access to Trump's records, you know, tax records, but now, who is the sitting president that will be defending this? Biden. I love it. I love yes. it. Because here's the reality. <laughs> Does any president or any politician want to disclose, actually disclose their tax documents? The answer is no, Joel. The answer right, is right. absolutely not. They, um, uh, why, why do you say that? One okay, so here here's the reality. Um, tax tax documents are one; they are private. There should right. be some realm of privacy to them. They are not, you know, they're obviously not public record. And I think a lot of these politicians, especially, it depends on which way you lean. Right? If you're leaning toward the left side, you know, right. you typically are associated with liberals, and you know, a a, uh, a fuzzier feeling when it comes to humanity and how we share wealth and you know, tax laws and things like that. If you're leaning on the right, you're usually big business. Right. Okay. But the reality for all politicians is that typically they are very wealthy. Typically. Okay. Good. Independently very wealthy. And if they're not so, before the inner politics, they are when they leave politics. Uh, we'll leave that aside, but I agree with you. So when it comes to now President Biden, who is a Democrat, not a secret, who, you know, has sided with the, I think, this would probably not be inappropriate to say, you know, the the left millennial, you know, generation who was totally anti-Trump for maybe his tax returns to come out subsequently at some point in the future. And people may feel differently about him. Right. And 
Uh, you, you hit the, the nail on the head. So now we have this theory of, hey, you know, you got to be careful what you ask for because you might get it, and then it's going to be used against you next time around. Like, like right now, the Democrats are saying, hey, we got to stop the filibuster. The filibuster is horrible. It's like uh, Democrats just two years ago, you were using the filibuster all the time. Uh, so why was it good two years ago and not good now? And so they got to be careful. They do away with the filibuster now, two years from now, when they want to use it, it won't be there for them to use. And so here, Biden is now in the White House. So he's saying, well, wait a second, maybe you shouldn't have access to the executive's tax returns. I, I don't want you going after things that I don't want to disclose. Uh, and so they're, they're quickly now realizing if they just turn over these documents from the executive branch to the congressional branch, then that power, once it's gone, it's gone, and they will, who knows where future uh, congressmen or politicians might go with that power. So it's an interesting situation where now Biden will be defending Trump, at least Trump's position in this tax return matter. All right, uh, now let's move on to the big case. And this actually is probably a bigger case than the NCAA, though we don't have much time to spend on it, which is a good thing, because I do not understand it. What I'm talking about is the Google v. Oracle case. And so, Amy, I want to give you a first shot here, seeing if you can un uh, explain what this case is about. And then uh, depending upon how you do, I'm, I'm going to butcher it. I, I, I'm, before you even go down this road, I'm going to tell you I had to text my son in college and say, Zach, can you please explain to me so I can explain it to my listeners what this case is all about? Because I'm not sure I understand it. But I'm going to give you first shot here, Amy. I appreciate that you believe, because I am in my 30s, that I would have some knowledge of technology. I don't, but you let don't. me give it a shot anyway. Okay. So from my understanding, from my very simplistic technological uh, mind, I am understanding that Google put out some kind of coding system that has become, I, and I don't, I don't really understand what it's for, and I hope our listeners you know, don't jump down our throats for this. I don't really get it, but they put out some kind of coding system that it became so popular and so frequently used that now the issue becomes, I think Google wants to patent or trademark this coding system and everyone's like, hold on. It's like trying to just by way of example, I don't know, patent or trademark, you know, a tissue because Kleenex is associated with tissue now. That's right, what right. I, I think that's correct. So this is the Java, um, I, I think, script and the Java code. And so Oracle designed this code, or at least they're the ones that own the copyright to it now. The intellectual property rights to it now. And apparently this code is is so popular. And you probably know this way back in the days, like, uh, you know, Java. You have, you have Java downloaded. And so I asked my son, can you explain to me what it is that Java created that's so important, fundamental, that everyone has now taken it and used it? Well, this was his best shot. He said, Dad, let's say you send a text message to someone uh, in, in Florida. All right, so you send them a text message. You're sending them information. How do they receive that text message? It's because they have some kind of coding that takes what you sent them and allows them to read it on their end. And so the same kind of process is going on here now where the Java's code is what is allows for these different software companies and designers to be able to read certain things. That's that's my best shot. I know I butchered it. And you know what? We don't even need to know that much for to understand this case. 
this is what the case is about. So Oracle created this Java code, and it's so big, so popular. Everyone is using it. Can they get a copyright to that um, that code such that Google has to pay them whenever they use it, such that any other software design company out there would have to pay Oracle uh, money whenever they use that code? And so uh, I assume, Amy, you know th- what the answer to that question is? No, uh, it, it would destroy our economy. It would destroy the probably the whole software cord sourcing, uh, you know, uh, economy and business if they all had to pay royalties to Oracle. And so, I think this. I think this was a case where the Supreme Court said, "We we can't unravel this." I mean, maybe. Maybe Oracle had an argument, but we just can't go down that road. That would shut down that whole sector of the economy. Any thoughts on the Oracle v. Google case? My, the only question I have is why now? Why are we trying to copyright this now? Was, was it, hasn't this been around for a really long time? So why that's, now? That's a good question. That's really my, you know, I, I know motive doesn't always matter, right? But as a lawyer, I think... For us, even when the motive really doesn't matter, we always want to know why because we're super annoying. We were the why kids when we were right. small. Like every, you know, every, every question to your mother was why, 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 and she's like, "Oh my god, I don't know." Um, right, right. So, so my question is, why now? And understanding that it would it would potentially destroy or unravel, you know, the economy and everybody using it. And how would you even track it? And you know, that's a whole another, you know bag of bag over there but my biggest issue is dear google you know what took you 20 some odd years to do this right right and that actually is a really solid point amy because when you if you are in possession of anything that's in intellectual property uh and and someone starts to infringe upon that even as smallest the slightest little bit you really have to fight it if you if you want to protect your intellectual property if you let it go on for a while then that does become a problem because you then can't unravel it and courts will hold that against you that you sat on your rights when it came to, I don't know in this context how long they sat on their rights before they told, hey, Google, hey, stop it. You owe us that money back. Uh, you know, was it immediately or was it several years that had passed? That is a very good question and a great legal concept that if you do own intellectual property, you, you really have to defend it or, or you very well will lose it. All right. Well, Amy, that is all we have time for today. We don't have time today to do our Hollywood uh, game. So I'm going to put that off till next week. Uh, next week, though, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to play for you various clips from Hollywood movies, and you're going to have to give me the actors, the um, uh, the, the scene. So I hey, watch up, uh, get some free time because I'm going to put you on the spot <laughs> next week, and we'll have a lot of fun. So, all right, Amy, have a have a great week. Anything uh, that we should know about that you are going to face this week? Any more treatments? I will not be facing any more cosmetic treatments right. this week, but I will keep you updated if I decide to change my mind and maybe go for like a Kylie Jenner lip treatment. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> well, and hopefully next week we will have the YouTube up so that way they can see the whole Colonel Sanders look. So, all right. Thank you so much. Have a great week. And that's our edition of Debriefing the Law. Have a great week, Joel. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
Please give us a five-star review. We need your love to help us continue highlighting the funnier side of the law. I want to give a special shout-out to our Vice President of Operations, Wendy Oster, without whom this entire operation would be a mess. Sean Wynn and 15.5 Features for making me sound way better than I actually do. Brooke Bolin for spreading the good word about us. And Ryan Kuhn and Paul Kuhn of Triplicity Marketing for our technical and computer support. Mm-hmm.